No one can love the country as much as I do. For surely woods, trees and rocks produce the echo which man desires to hear. Those are the words of Ludwig van Beethoven and they may well serve as a motto to the pastoral symphony, his sixth symphony in F major, which has its own subtitle, Recollection of Country Life, he writes underneath, and then in brackets, more the expression of feeling than a painting. And this is absolutely key. Throughout his sketches, which began around about 1803, 1804, we can see again and again little reminders to himself that this is not music which is painting a picture. It's more music to sum up the sense of feeling that we have as human beings when we go into the wide rural spaces, the open countryside. And that's a really key thing to remember all the way through our exploration of this piece. It is not pure program music. It doesn't seek to actually tell a story. Now let's look back at uh, where the pastoral symphony as an idea came from. In fact, it had been alive and well in music for well, well over 300 years before Beethoven grappled with it. If you think right back to their medieval troubadours with their chansons and their frottolas, all about kind of earthy country life, then the great era of the madrigal, 16th century, just think how many madrigals there are about shepherds and shepherdesses. Then in the high Baroque era, you get endless depictions of storms, of water, certainly of various birds like the nightingale, the cuckoo and the dove. Then in the classical era, principally at the hands of Joseph Haydn, works like the seasons and the creation. Again, great big depictions of storm and sunlight out of storm, etc., etc. So when Beethoven took on this concept, this mantra, and wrote his Pastoral Symphony, which was completed in 1808, he had all of these kind of precedents in mind. In a way, the Pastoral Symphony of Beethoven is the culmination of a 300-year tradition because there was precious little other pastoral music written in the course of the 19th century. Let's just think for a minute, and these are things that we should be looking out for as we go through, about the key fundamentals of so-called pastoral music. First of all, and most obviously, there's the use of drones, sense of a kind of rustic simplicity. Then much use of repetition rather than development of themes. They tend to come round and round, more or less as they first were. Principally, that's the case. Of course, there are simple harmonic structures, much use of diatonic harmony, root chords, and then very closely related chords along the side. And finally, much use of compound time signatures, 6-8 and 12-8, and I'll explore those in a bit more depth with you as we come to them a little later on. So, the first movement of his sixth symphony, having said that he didn't want to paint a picture, he did, however, give each of the five movements of this work, five notice and not the conventional four, he did give each movement a subtitle. The first movement subtitle is Pleasant, Cheerful Sensations Awakened on Arrival in the Countryside. And the first part of this movement is packed with information which does paint some kind of scene. As you'll see, he's straight to the point. There's no introduction. The theme immediately comes in snapshot, set over a drone. Direct then and straightforward. The subtitle 
that I just read to you from the top of this movement could indeed read pleasant, simple, and cheerful sensations awakened on arrival in the countryside. Now, um, on doing a little bit of research, I find that this tune may well in itself derive from an old Slavonic folk tune. Beethoven was quite fond of doing that in a way that most people don't realize. So, he carries on with that theme, parceling it out now between the first and second violins. You might notice pitches change, but the rhythmic blueprint remains the same. So I mentioned earlier about repetition being an absolute key to the pastoral style. Well, here we get it. Repetition, 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 rather than variation. Like, in a way, the simplest of folk songs, therefore rustic and plain speaking, certainly in Beethoven's eyes. The development, you'll find, is stuffed full of this kind of repeating texture. Well, now we're going to build to the first forte, the first loud passage in this first movement. And notice the clarinets and bassoons in a minute, playing in thirds, historically another pastoral feature. And then the flute decorates above. There must be birds somewhere in this scene. If the first theme suggests a kind of chirpy pleasure, then the second theme, which we come to now, is a kind of blissful languor. The bliss shared between the first violins, then second violins, then cello, and then cello and bass together, then clarinets, etc. Passing the theme out around different areas of the orchestra without changing it at all. Here's another tune born out of the rhythmic DNA of the first. Yeah, ba, 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 ba. The answer to it then occurs in the oboes and bassoons. <laughs> Repetition, repetition of whole phrases and of rhythms within the phrase. So what does repetition actually suggest? For Beethoven, it's definitely akin to the great outdoors, the monotony which is never monotonous, the constant sounds of nature. 
Listen to this in the development section. Repetition now used to build momentum. And notice the pedals, drones in one violin or the other, which through their very stasis, a kind of still point in a turning world, they drive the action forwards. Classic, slow build Beethoven crescendo, starting in B flat major and ending in a solid wall of D major. No one had written long haul crescendos of this kind before. Now, repetition can also engender a kind of delicious mockery, but who is mocking who? <laughs> And then an effortless piece of counterpoint, the more common musical form of repetition after all. In other words, one voice imitating another. And then an exact replay of the long haul crescendo, but this time from G major up to E major. And following that, the ever economical Beethoven chooses another portion of the first theme. Here it becomes a rising sequence, culminating in just about the only minor key intrusion in the whole movement. It's like the sun has briefly gone behind the clouds. So, having put it in the minor key, without changing the shape of that melody, he can suggest entirely new things. There's one final use of the repeating yat da 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 figure, and it occurs in the coda of the movement, where it's made to suggest culmination. The music is definitely in the concluding phase now. chattering clarinet, then setting us up for, well, the exposed woodwinds which end this movement, laying the seed, in fact, for what we'll hear at the end of the slow movement which comes. Something of the birds may be here in a quietening forest. We move forward now into the second movement of the Pastoral Symphony, which has the subtitle Seen by the Brook. This is possibly the most specifically illustrative movement 
illustrative of a scene by a stream, or, in the light of Beethoven's comments, the impression made on the mind by the sound of the stream, which is characterized in two textures, which we hear throughout almost the entire movement. Here they are, both of them. So that sound is the background to the scene. Beethoven actually sketched the sound of a stream in a notebook back in 1803, just exactly like that. And you can see it along with all the sketches for this symphony at the British Library in London. But that second violin viola cello motif we just played is also thematic, set underneath the other theme of the, the moment in the first violins, in what seems at first like merely a decoration, and you'll hear it becomes gradually a lovely consecutive melody. idea you heard then expanded outwards, clarinet and bassoon taking the first violin's theme whilst the first violin's trilled over the top. You notice too the horns on a series of drones which then became syncopated. Here's the second theme. Repetition again, both through the clarinet taking the theme and the first violins and bassoon imitating it in counterpoint. You notice the whole rhythmic shape of this movement is a swaying 12-8, otherwise known as a Siciliana, the first choice for composers conveying a pastoral scene. You get this lovely one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. A real ebb and flow quality sort of on the breeze, really, and absolutely a compound time signature like either 12-8 or 6-8, always the favorite choice for composers wishing to convey this kind of great outdoors scene. Another important theme now in the first bassoon, giving the lie to the claim sometimes made that Beethoven didn't or couldn't write good tunes. Well, if you listen to it unaccompanied, perhaps you'd find it a tad bald, but it works so poetically because of what it's set over 
melodic beauty in Beethoven is all about context. Never before has a bassoon been used so richly in melody, certainly not up to this point anyway. Time, ladies and gentlemen, for a bird quote. For the ornithologists amongst you, this is Beethoven's representation of a goldfinch. And how lovely that he's managed to make it fit so well with the murmuring broken chords of the accompaniment. It sounds thematic as a result. And notice the yearning, slowed-down, broken chord of the first violins and violas at the same time. Once again, a syncopated horn pedal permeates the texture. At the top of the recapitulation section, that is the third and final section of this first movement, the flute has the first subject, and that arpeggio figure that was the goldfinch has by now become an absolutely integral and natural part of the musical texture. We hear it in bassoon, in clarinet, in the first violins, proving again that this is not literal scene painting. The goldfinch has become purely a resonance in the mind. Again, that quote from Beethoven, you remember, I gave at the very beginning, nature produces an echo which we desire to hear. Stopping there, ladies and gentlemen, on a lovely interrupted cadence. Well, right at the end of the movement, we suddenly go very programmatic, literal, with what I call the bird cadenza. Why, you might wonder, given that Beethoven's been so abstract, painting a psychological picture rather than a figurative one. Perhaps he's having a joke at those who wanted to see the piece as programmatic. Or perhaps he just liked birds. At any rate, this bird cadenza is specifically naturalistic, but still motivic. The nightingale, flute, developing a figure from the accompaniment we've had from bar one.
So besides the flute being a nightingale, the oboe was being a quail, and of course the clarinet was being a cuckoo. And they're answered, you heard just then, by the first violins with a warm reminder of the second subject of this movement. And what does he do next in the closing bars? Well, repeat it, of course. The premiere of Beethoven's Sixth Symphony took place in the Theater an der Fien in Vienna on December 26, 1808, and the event was the most incredible musical happening of Beethoven's life, if not the most incredible musical event of all time. Alongside the Sixth Symphony were premieres of the Fifth Symphony, the fourth piano concerto, featuring the last ever appearance of Beethoven as soloist with an orchestra, two movements of the Mass in C, the aria A Perfido, and then, rising out of some pianoforte improvisation from Beethoven, the choral fantasy, composed at the last minute as a finale to the concert, adding up to over four hours of music. In the words of a patron of Beethoven's, Reichardt, a letter of December 25th, 1808, there, we braved it out in the bitterest cold from 6.30 until 10.30 and found that the experience confirmed that one can easily have too much of the good, even more of the strong. Neither I nor the kind, delicate prince could leave the box before the entire end of the concert, although many a faulty execution tried our patience to the utmost. <laughs> In fact, to say that the concert was not an unqualified success would be understating the matter. There was limited rehearsal time. At the final rehearsal, the ink on the vocal parts for the choral fantasy was reputedly still wet. Due to this, the fantasy was stopped during the concert by Beethoven about halfway through and restarted. In the words of Seyfried, when the master brought out his orchestral fantasia with choruses, he arranged with me at the somewhat hurried rehearsal, with wet voice parts as usual, that the second variation should be played without the repeat. In the evening, however, absorbed in his creation, he forgot all about the instructions which he'd given, repeated the first part while the orchestra accompanied the second, which sounded not altogether edifying. A trifle too late, the concertmaster noticed the mistake, stopped playing and called out Julie, again! A little displeased, the violinist Anton Vronitsky asked, with repeats? Yes, came the answer, and now the thing went straight as a string.
A further difficulty came with the extremely cold auditorium. This was mid-December. Cold for both audience and performers. And difficult, therefore, especially given that this is a four-and-a-half-hour extravaganza. There was also difficulties caused by Beethoven's behaviour. He caused a change of singer for the aria Ar Perfido by quarrelling with the original artist. The stand-in was repeatedly so nervous and cold that she didn't stop shaking for the entire aria. And in the words of a reviewer, While Damozel Kalitsky has a very pleasant voice, she did not let us hear many secure notes, and often even false ones. The two movements of the mass were poorly performed as well. The reviewer goes on, A Gloria with chorus and solo voices, the execution of which, however, was entirely wrong, and Sanctus, unfortunately, as was the case with the Gloria, entirely gone wrong in its execution. And the composer Louis Spohr recorded some years later in his autobiography that Beethoven was playing a new piano concerto of his, but already at the first tutti, forgetting that he was the soloist, he jumped up and began to conduct in his own peculiar fashion. At the first sforzando, he threw out his arms so wide that he knocked over both the lamps from the music stand of the piano. The audience laughed, and Beethoven was so beside himself over this disturbance that he stopped the orchestra and made them start again. Seyfried, worried for fear that this would happen again in the same place, took the precaution of ordering two choir boys to stand next to Beethoven and to hold the lamps in their hands. One of them innocently stepped closer and followed the music from the piano part. But when the fatal Sforzando burst forth, the poor boy received from Beethoven's right hand such a sharp slap in the face that, terrified, he dropped the lamp on the floor. The other, more wary boy, who'd been anxiously following Beethoven's movements, succeeded in avoiding the blow by ducking in time. If the audience had laughed the first time, they now indulged in a truly bacchanalian riot. Beethoven broke out in such a fury that when he struck the first chord of the solo, he broke six strings. Every effort of the true music lovers to restore calm and attention remained unavailing for some time. Thus, the first allegro of the concerto was completely lost to the audience. Since this accident, Beethoven wanted to give no more concerts. However, this quote from Louis Spohr more than likely refers to another concert which Beethoven was asked to give free of charge the previous year, November 1807, as a condition of getting the 1808 concert date. In fact, the lead-up to this 1808 concert was as fraught with difficulty as the event itself. There Forbes relates of the November 07 concert. In return for Beethoven's noble contributions of his works and personal services to the charity concerts of November the 15th, 1807, April the 13th and November the 15th, 1808, Hartel, theatre manager from the beginning of 1808, finally gave him the use of the Theater an Fin for an Académie on December the 22nd. On the evening of Leopold's Day, Tuesday, November the 15th, Beethoven conducted one of his symphonies, the fourth, the Coriolan Overture and a piano concerto, but, either in the rehearsals or at the public performance, something which happened which caused a very serious misunderstanding and breach between Beethoven and the orchestra. 
Beethoven had made the orchestra so angry with him that only the leader would have anything to do with him, and it was only after much persuasion and upon condition that Beethoven should not be in the room during the rehearsals that the rank and file consented to play. Well, this can't have pleased the theatre management, and in a letter of March 1808, Beethoven refers to both a police letter and a meeting with a lawyer to force the December the 22nd concert to happen. So, in conclusion, this was a remarkable event, punctuated through and through with difficulty and disaster. As a result, not only Beethoven's last ever solo performance with orchestra, it was also the only time he premiered two symphonies together and seems to be his last concert of premieres at the Theater Ante Wien, a venue which had previously seen the premieres of Fidelio, the second and third symphonies, as well as the violin concerto. Thankfully, there's no evidence to suggest that the performance of Beethoven's sixth symphony went anything other than smoothly, something for which Beethoven must have been profoundly grateful. So back into the symphony now, ladies and gentlemen, and we're at the scherzo, which has the subtitle Merry Gathering of the Country People. In other words, it's a kind of peasant's festival. And from the delicate wonder at nature itself, which was the slow movement, we turn to the rude and boisterous jollity of the people who live there. Now, this piece is a subtle modification of a minuet and trio form, although in Beethoven's case, we might call it better scherzo and trio form as we'll see, and especially in that there's a stompy dance in 2-4, two, two in a bar, tacked onto music which is essentially three in a bar. You know well enough how it starts. So what have we got? Broken chords of F major, leading to D major in the strings, that's one theme and the flute and bassoons, another above. A third element, rustic due to the grace notes you hear in the upper instruments, fecund due to the heavy accents. This follows shortly. Straight after that, we get what we could really call the trio section of this dance. You get an offbeat oboe and also a bassoon that can obviously only play three notes. It's a, well, at the same time, you've got this quaint accompaniment from the fiddles. This must be a pastiche of some kind of pearly village band. the clarinet answered the oboe. Along the way you heard some sort of gently hot fluctuations in dynamic, 
a sense that someone's definitely had too much to drink. Apparently Beethoven was something of a fan of a country band who used to play in a pub called The Three Ravens in a village near Vienna. So perhaps this is his portrayal of them. Now at the heart of this rough scherzo, as I mentioned, there's a stompy dance in two in a bar which is tacked on to the movement. It comes twice and it is absolutely a great big knees up. <laughs> absolutely how it derives pretty much entirely from, in fact, the first movement of the work, that da-da-ka-da-da rhythm. Now, the rude and blaring quality of this dance is only further heightened by the fact that the band seem to only know two chords, as we just heard. So, the scherzo trio music then reappears. There's another dance of the beer swillers, that music we just played. The scherzo trio comes yet again, and Beethoven suddenly hikes the tempo for the supreme coup de théâtre of the entire symphony. A sudden and unmistakable distant sound of thunder and everything is changed utterly from a big C major chord to a frenetic pianissimo D flat, an effect which, quite rightly, no lesser composer than Camille Saint-Saëns described as sublime. This is textbook programmatic interruption by an entirely representational sound. Now you find, as soon as the music starts to unfurl of this fourth movement, the storm, doom-laden diminished intervals being the order of the day, especially chords of a diminished seventh. This movement shot through with them. Strong sense, therefore, of tonal and harmonic ambiguity, heightened by the uh, predictable and mercurial dynamic changes, the louds and the softs, there's no regular phrase structure and no clear overall form. And that D-flat we heard at the beginning, a D-flat tonality, has become E-flat minor. But he's toying with us. The real goal is dark, dark F minor, a million miles from F major, the key of the symphony as a whole. And we're into a spectacular war of the elements, together with drums, incidentally, for the first and only time in the whole symphony. Just listen to those diminished chords, ladies and gentlemen. A particularly striking effect lies at the bottom of that texture we just played. You get the cellos playing five notes per beat and the basses four. As the storm whips more and more mercilessly, Beethoven unleashes two further elements to his arsenal, piccolo and trombones. And at the tail end, we hear what might be called the rain motif we heard at the beginning, but completely transformed, just to remind you of the rain motif. Now transformed into a beautiful arching 
oboe line, a sonic rainbow. And as effortlessly as that, we're into the final movement, which has the title Shepherd's Song or Shepherd's Hymn, and the subtitle Beneficent Feelings Bound with Thanks to the Godhead After the Storm. Immediately we hear what is, for all the world, like a shepherd's pipe coming from the clarinet, or maybe an alpine horn call, even a yodel. But in fact, there's a more specific model for this theme that we'll explore in a minute. It comes from Haydn's great oratorio, The Seasons. This is one of the principal themes from summer. Straight in then, please. that delicate violin melody is the shepherd's hymn. Notice we're back in the pastoral Siciliana style beat, 6-8 this time, so two beats to the bar, each one again divided into three. A subsidiary theme comes hard on its heels in the violas and cellos, but listen to how it's borne out of what came just before. Here it is then in its revised form. Tutia H. of that idea as we went along. Well, on to the second theme or second subject proper now. Before we play it, just have a listen to this ancient Croatian folk melody. Mm -hmm. 
once again, Beethoven borrowing from the natural art of the past. Now, there's one final bit of pure Beethovenian genius to show you. Listen to how here the main theme is subsumed into the texture. It's implied without actually being played. Well, to conclude, Beethoven's Sixth Symphony is an enduring masterpiece. Of that, there's no doubt. But this is partly because it doesn't just describe a scene. Its goal is our own rich inner landscape, and through it, our relationship, our potential for oneness with the glorious natural world. Any questions? Hi.、Um, I guess this is a social history question as much as a music question. Given that this music is apparently inspired by the lives of people living in the country in Beethoven's time, what are the chances that those people would actually have been able to attend a performance of this, say, in Vienna? And if they did, would they have recognised themselves in it? It's a very interesting question. The sad truth is, I'm sure virtually none of the、uh, the country folk, as Beethoven saw them, I think he almost thought they were a different breed of people. But the idea of them coming to a big metropolis like Vienna and coming to a big grand theatre to hear a performance is,、um, I think, very unlikely. The reality was that the Enlightenment had happened in the last years of the 18th century, so there was a new kind of access to what were the burgeoning middle classes. But essentially, they were tradespeople, people with money, and also people who tended to live in the urban centres. So they were able to to find access to the best kind of concerts in town. But certainly, that kind of access hadn't filtered down to people living in the countryside. This is, of course, in a pre-industrial age, so people lived off the land, and sure as hell didn't make that much from it. Another question? There's a lady just over there. How long would it have taken、uh, Beethoven to write this music, and how old would he have been? Okay, well, answer the first, the second question first. He was 38, as far as we know. Because there is a great deal of debate over exactly the year when Beethoven was born. He gave it out certainly in two different versions at various points in his life. In terms of the gestation of the work, he began sketching for it as early as 1803. And as I said, it's well worth a, a visit, ladies and gentlemen, if you happen to be near the British Library in London. How fortunate for us in Britain that we happen to own our country owns the sketchbooks, the manuscripts for this particular Beethoven symphony. And you'll see then, you can chart the amazing process through which Beethoven underwent. He, he was a composer who struggled and laboured intensively.、Uh, you look at the manuscript of the Fifth Symphony, I find myself often thinking of this, and it looks like a bloody battlefield of corrections, turmoil, doubt. Compare it with a, a manuscript of Mozart, who was fond of saying again and again that music poured out of him as easily as sow's piddle. His music is straight out of his head, onto the page, fully scored, no second thoughts, nothing. Beethoven, quite the reverse, the kind of inner agony of the man. At times, he scrapes so hard on a page, scraping something out. You go through that page and through the page beneath it as well. So slow gestational process. Of course, that doesn't mean for a minute that Beethoven is less of a great genius of music than Mozart. He's just a different sort, born in a different age and with a very different temperament. So yes, sketching began in 1803, but the piece was actually composed, i.e., all the sketches brought together and the thing given some kind of form and colour and shape, 
in the middle months, well, from February actually through to the middle of 1808. And then, as I said earlier, it was premiered on a very cold night as part of a four-hour marathon concert December that year. Well, ladies and gentlemen, next week, if you listen to the programme, you'll hear me workshopping Beethoven's next symphony, his seventh symphony, and assisting me in that process will be my period instrument orchestra, Harmony Band. Today, on the other hand, I'm working with a modern instrument orchestra, the BBC Concert Orchestra. So it's quite interesting, I hope, to compare and contrast the two different coloristic sound worlds which are engendered by those two very different ensembles. So now, let's perform Beethoven's Sixth Symphony, his pastoral, together with the BBC Concert Orchestra, led by Cynthia Fleming. (laughs) 